0: Chapter 43, verse 22. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money, or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case so that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither seen nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house, that is, a temple. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not. Nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I take the rest of it make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel, and you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me. For I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. This is the word of God. Now, last week, we saw God's way to... Reformation, as he realigns us with his purpose and his high standards. Now the prophet shows us the way to revival as God refills us with his life and power. And the point of it all is for us to become living proof that God really is as good as he says he is. Now, the structure, as you see in the outline on page 15, the structure of the passage mirrors last week's text. Isaiah leads us through the same four steps in our thinking, the problem, the remedy, the reason, the outcome. And the heart of the passage is God's promise to pour his spirit out upon us. And God never makes a promise just to be sensational. We need the outpouring of the Spirit. Why? Point one, the problem. Chapter 43, verse 22. I'm going to revise the translation of this first line just a little bit. It was not me that you called upon, O Jacob. The word me is the emphatic word. It was not me that you called upon, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You've not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and have wearied me with your iniquities. Now, what is God saying? He's not saying that his people were not worshiping him. He's saying that their worship wasn't really about Him. He's saying that the very sacrifices they were bringing, far from removing sins, were themselves sins and iniquities. God searched the inner reality of their worship, and what did He find there? He found weariness. And to God, that's a problem. Now, God did tell Israel how to worship right down to the details. The book of Leviticus, as you perhaps know, is, is their, it was their God-given manual for worship with elaborate instructions, and they knew how to follow the script. In fact, on special occasions, their worship was downright lavish. One time, for example, um, they sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Now, that wasn't wrong. It was right. But if the worship of God, however extravagant outwardly, sinks to the level of joyless duty, well, that just isn't God's will. He says here, you have not satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. If God isn't satisfied with the fat of 142,000 sacrifices, what more does he want? What he wants is for worship to unburden sinners. That's what the sacrificial system was for. God never meant it to be a wearying imposition. He says here in verse 23, I have not burdened you. But throughout Israel's history, they treated worship as a mechanism for controlling God and putting God in their debt, and exalting themselves, and naturally enough, it became wearisome. What else could it become? Lugging sacrifice after sacrifice to the temple to obligate God. Well, there's no release for us in that. In fact, God says here, he himself doesn't even enjoy it. The very worship that Israel thought put them above reproach, was itself in God's sight a reproach because it was weariness and heaviness rather than a lifting of the human spirit. In his typical way, Martin Luther put it bluntly, the curse of a godless man can sound more pleasant in God's ears than the hallelujah of the pious. What does this say about God? Is he just being more demanding than ever? Is he saying, go ahead and give me your 142,000 sacrifices and smile when you do it? No, I don't think he's saying that. God is offended if worship, however impeccable outwardly, is not setting hearts free. Again, how can it be otherwise? The sacrificial system of the Old Testament prefigured the cross of Christ and Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so what are we learning about worship here simply this on the one hand the greatest violation of worship is when we turn a means of grace into a means of weariness. And on the other hand, the greatest realization of worship is when our hearts are refreshed through the finished work of Christ on the cross. That kind of worship pleases God because God is a burden bearer. Now, one would think that such a God would be irresistible. But here's the depth of our problem. We want to deserve what we get. We really do. The logic of reciprocity is deeply impressed into our moral psychology. For example, I read that when the disabled American veterans mail out requests for donations, the appeal draws out of the public typically a 19% response. But when the mailing includes free personalized address labels, the response rate jumps to 35%. Why? The logic of reciprocity, of giving in order to get, really works. It's the way our minds work. It's the way we we relate to each other. And we drag that way of thinking into our relationship with God. We give in order to get. Our natural drift is to worship not to unburden ourselves, but to obligate God. That wearies us. Because it denies the very being of God. Verse 25. Here is God. I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Do you see? God locates his very identity In blotting out our sins and remembering them no more. It's who God is. Now Satan is the accuser. And he comes before God and he says, Look at that Christian down there. Why do you still love him? Don't you remember what he did to you last week and then again on Tuesday and then again yesterday? And God says... No, I don't remember. Gabriel, what's in the database on that Christian? And Gabriel logs on. But the only information that comes up on the screen is the righteousness of Christ freely credited to that Christian because that is how God honors himself. I blot out your transgressions. I splice those plays, those bad plays out of the game film for my own sake. So God says back to Satan, I'm not saying your facts are wrong, but you're not telling the whole story about that, Christian. And what matters most to me for my own sake it's not that Christian's record, but Christ's record for that Christian. That is grace. That's God. You know, I wish it weren't so, but something inside us doesn't want grace. We want to justify ourselves at least a little bit. And that's why, with great irony in verse 26... God invites us, as it were, to come up with something in ourselves that deserves his mercy. For example, here's how it might work in our thinking. I know I've done this. Um, When we blame God for the way he treats us, when we resent him, where does that hostility come from? It comes from our own demanding self-righteousness that says we deserve better. It's the default setting of our minds. And, and, and so God is saying, okay, make your case. But the fact is, according to verse 27, we have nothing to be proud of right down to our roots. And if we refuse God's grace, he says in verse 28, I will deliver Jacob to utter destruction. Do we really want what we deserve? The word translated utter destruction in verse 28 is the same word used of God's total annihilation of Canaanite culture in the book of Joshua. So you see, turning the grace of worship into the drudgery of penance turns Israel into Canaan. But in the mercy of God... That is not the end of the passage. It's only the beginning. That is not where God leaves us. That is where God finds us and begins a new work. So point number two, the remedy, chapter 44. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Behold the glory of the Lord. This is your God. Do you see how he goes out of his way to reassure us? We are his servant. He chose us. He made us. He formed us. He will help us. It is all of grace. God does not want us to be insecure with him. His remedy for our violations of his grace is more grace. And he wants us to know it. Our sins do discredit us. And our sins do free God of all obligation to us. We can demand nothing of him, but that doesn't mean that God quits on us. What does he do? God turns, I will profane, of verse 28, into, I will pour, in verse 3. Look at verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, weary people. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. I love this. It is the way of God to come down to weary people with his very presence so that we come alive he's promising to pour himself out with such generosity that we become as one author puts it a people saturated with god are you thirsty and dry If so, that's all right. Don't even be ashamed of that. God loves thirsty people. He has a tenderness for thirsty people. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What he has for you is not weariness, but satisfaction. But it comes only from him. On July 1st, 1838, Robert Murray McShane, one of our Presbyterian heroes, preached on this very verse at his church in Dundee. And he said to his congregation, When two travelers are going through the wilderness, you may know which of them is thirsty by his always looking out for wells. So it is with thirsty believers. They love the word, read and preached. They thirst for it more and more. Is it so with you, dear believing brethren? In Scotland long ago it used to be so. Often after the blessing was pronounced, the people would not go away till they heard more. Ah, children of God, it is a fearful sign to see little thirst in you. I do not wonder much when the world stays away from our meetings for the word and prayer, but when you do, I am dumb. My soul will weep in secret places your pride. But I want you to know that God is keeping his word of promise for his own glory. You and I happen to live, it's our privilege to live in that very era of history, in God's great plan of history, when in fact the Spirit is being poured out in great abundance. 2,000 years ago, on that day of Pentecost, God unleashed the mighty river of the Holy Spirit upon a guilty world through the merit of Christ. And He continues to pour out His Spirit and His presence, His grace, His saving power and love with overflowing richness. Sometimes... The tide of the Spirit ebbs, and the cause of God suffers as we languish in our natural mediocrity. But then, God visits us again with wave after wave of overflowing grace, and we flourish. Now, what is God saying here? God is not just promising to make church more fun. Although there is no greater joy, maybe you've experienced it. There is no greater joy than when God's people are awash in the Spirit. But understand what God is saying. He is promising to renew all things. He is moving toward a new heavens and a new earth. And he is beginning here among us. How? Through new supplies of the Holy Spirit. The Puritans used to speak of incomes of the Holy Spirit. With new life, new joy, new growth, new surges forward toward his appointed goal. We are not helping God get there. He is taking the initiative. He is uplifting us. He is defending His cause. And the remedy He brings is nothing less than Himself. His very Spirit, His lifeblood, as it were. No greater gift. Now, under the influences of the Spirit, instead of people sort of sitting on the fence, you know, they... Verse 5 says they line up to identify with the Lord. It's as if they go into a bidding war to convert to Christ. Look at verse 5. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. In other words, notorious sinners become notorious believers. That is true worship. As the magnitude of God's grace breaks upon us with fresh clarity and power. Isaiah 44, 1 through 5, which is the heart of the passage, is God's way of saying, here is the future of my people. I will create new realities by the sheer force of my grace. Your part is not to deny your thirst, but to bring it to me and let me satisfy you. And then, why do I do all this, God God asks? Verse 6, point 3, the reason. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. The ultimate purpose of God is to glorify himself in us. And because his goodness is of a spreading nature, he denies all other gods. Not to diminish our joy, but to intensify it. You know, if we can get past our modern prejudice against this and accept God on his terms as self-existent, all-sufficient God, we are not robbed. We are enriched. It's perfect. He gets the glory. We get the mercy. Jesus described the ultimate human experience this way. Enter into... Do you know what comes next? enter into the joy of your master the exclusive reality of that God is as you well know an offense in our postmodern pluralistic ethos today but you know it's always been a stumbling block it always has been not just today why We don't want things to be that clear. There's something in our hearts that wants uh, to range free because we're deeply uncertain that God will satisfy us. We've always been like this. Gerhard von Rod in his Old Testament theology explains, this intolerant claim to exclusive worship is something unique in the history of religion. For in antiquity, the different temples were on easy terms with one another and left devotees a free hand to ensure a blessing for themselves from other gods as well. It was laissez-faire religion back then, and it still is today. But this stubborn insistence of the prophets that there is only one God will not go away. Why? Because God will not go away. And in every generation, he pours out the reality of himself upon guilty idolaters who thirst enough to give him a serious chance. The best answer to postmodern pluralism is not apologetics. The best answer is desperation. Our role, according to verse 8, is to be witnesses, living proof that God satisfies thirsty people. He is enough and He aims to prove it in us. That is the meaning of our lives. Now, the flip side of that is verses 9 through 20. We're not going to look at them in detail. But you can see how Isaiah mocks the absurdity of the idols. If you're looking at the English Standard Version, you see how Isaiah throttles back from poetry to mere prose. The NIV shows poetry there, but uh, most uh, English uh, translations shift to prose. Why does Isaiah do that? Because he sees no exaltedness here. It's idolatry that's wearisome. But why does Isaiah keep coming back to the problem of idols, as we've seen? Because idols are the problem. Think about it. If there is only one God, and if we are not experiencing His fullness, there's a reason. We're worshiping idols. The exclusive reality of God forces the question of idolatry, we need to think about it. More than we realize, our world today is crowded with idols and they get inside our heads sometimes. These exiled Jews in Babylon, to whom Isaiah first wrote this, were immersed, as we are, they were immersed in a social construct deliberately intended to validate and reinforce false worship. That's what that world world was about. It's what Our world is about today. For example, back in that time, as the weary exiles would have walked into Babylon, they would have gone through the Ishtar Gate. The city had eight gates, each one named after a different god. They would have walked through the Ishtar Gate onto the processional way, and looking down, every step they took was on slabs of imported limestone, three and a half feet square, and along the beveled edge of each of those slabs were, were inscribed the words, to the honor of Marduk, the patron god of the deity. Everywhere they looked, to the honor of Marduk, to the honor of Marduk. In fact, the name Babylon, bab means gate of gods. The, that culture was presenting itself as the way to heaven on earth. It's what human cultures do. It's the meaning of human cultures. It's the meaning of our culture. The message today is God is not your life. Okay, have God. He's a garnish on the side. Fine. If you prefer that. But the real stuff of life is what you find on MTV and Fox News. That's idolatry. And it's absurd. Whatever derives from the creation for its value can have no ultimate value for us if it comes from the creation. Who has ever suffered the loss of all things to gain this world and come away a completed human being? Name one. Here's how we can go wrong. Verse 17. And the rest of his piece of wood... He makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. Now, what's wrong with that picture? The man has cut down a tree. Nothing wrong with that. God gave us trees. Trees are good things. He warms himself from that wood. No problem. He bakes bread over the fire. Good idea. Then he stands up the leftover piece of wood and asks it for deliverance. There's the absurdity. It is absurd to try to squeeze an ultimate experience out of a less than ultimate resource. It is false worship, for example. And I used to have a real, maybe I still do, I don't know. I used to have a real problem with this until God confronted me. As you know, I have a PhD. It's a good thing. It, it, a gift of God. He gave it to me. I'm thankful for it. I enjoyed studying for it it was fun but a PhD can be a problem if I look to that to deliver me from my deep sense of haunting insignificance if I derive my personhood from a thing I am a blind idolater my only deliverance is the only God That's what I'm here for, for him. What is it that consistently catches you up and disappoints you, and yet perhaps compulsively you go back to it again and again? God himself is your deliverance, and he is able to make himself real to you Bow the knee before him. Enter into true worship. Here's how. Verse 21.4 Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. Now the last line of verse 22. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. Isn't that interesting? The the materials used for idolatry will sing to the glory of God. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. What God has planned lies so far beyond our power to stop it. And what God has promised goes so far beyond what we can ask or think. It will take nothing less than a renovated creation to celebrate it properly. The Bible says that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God in their glory. Our part right now is to remember that God alone is our satisfaction and deliverance. And our part right now is to return to him. And our part right now is to worship. God is so sweet. Here's what you have in God. And I let A.W. Tozer put it for me. The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he must see them go one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss for having the source, capital S, Having the source of all things, he has in God all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For he now has it all in God, and he has it purely, legitimately, forever." How does God want us to rethink our lives and offload things we have considered necessary to our happiness, things we have demanded and insisted upon, so that our souls can rediscover God In his satisfying fullness, and we become living proof that human beings, though sinful, can become filled with all the fullness of God. That is the meaning of our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us such courageous clarity that we hasten to suffer the loss of all things in order to gain Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.